first I'll continue with some of the um, children's bulletins that uh, I've got behind on. Uh, if any of you have seen my desk, it's a mess, and um, I found one uh, from Easter, and it was really an encouragement. I had read before it before, but I had misplaced it. And one of the questions that the children, the, this child asked was, why did Jesus um, not appear to all at one time? And that's a great question. Uh, and that question is really answered in the, the Gospel of John, that he did appear uh, to many. In fact, he appeared to over 500 at one time, uh, according to uh, the Scriptures. And so there's a, a beautiful uh, account of him appearing to people individually, but also the disciples corporately and to a large group at one time before he ascended uh, after the resurrection many weeks later. So there's many witnesses to the resurrection, and uh, so we're encouraged by that. But that's a great question. Thank you for asking those. Children, keep asking those questions. And then one uh, from earlier in Genesis that we're catching up on from March is, why did uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth walk backward when they covered Noah in his drunkenness? What a great question. They were doing that out of uh, respect for their father. And so they were backing up to show him privacy, but also respect in covering his nakedness. And if you remember, uh, Japheth was, uh, was really looked down upon and, and cursed by his father because he was doing just the opposite and, and seeming to mock his father in his nakedness. And so uh, Shem and Ham, I mean, excuse me, Shem and Japheth were the ones that went backwards and, and covered their father uh, in, in that uh, situation. So they were doing that out of honor um, and and uh, respect for their father. So great question. Uh, thank you for asking those. And uh, we're encouraged, children, that you're uh, following along in your children's bulletins and uh, encouraging. it's encouraging to me to, to see your questions. So thank you. All right, as we uh, turn to God's Word, we're continuing uh, our study in Genesis. If you would turn to Genesis 17 with me, we will uh, read God's Word together. Genesis 17, and we're down in verse 15. Genesis chapter 17. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? This is the word of God. And God said to Abram, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation and I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abram. 
Then Abram took Ishmael, his son, and all of those born in his house, or bought with his own money, every male among the men of Abram's house. He circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, was, Ishmael his son, was 13 years old when, his, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very day, Abram and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in his house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Are you content? What I mean by that is often we can be discontent even in relationship with the Lord. In fact, the 10th commandment tells us that we should not be covetous. And covetousness is really the opposite of contentment. It's a, a, a rising up of discontentment in the human heart that we're tempted by many things to look at our lives or our circumstances and be discontent. And even in the relationship that we have with the Lord, we see Abraham in the very context of Genesis here, almost in a discontented state based upon the very promises that God had given to him. There were great promises but we noticed from the last several weeks that there's a continual waiting. There had been 10 years period where, uh, that we, we saw with uh, Abram's waiting and Sarai's waiting that they came up with this plan to bring Hagar into the mix and ultimately produced a fleshly response to God's promises. Or as we spoke of it a few weeks ago, God's will, man's way or trying to aid in God's fulfillment of the promise when God had clearly said that this child would come from Sarai. And so as we look at this and we consider God's working, even the midst of Sarah's barrenness, we have this great reminder that God is bearing with Abraham even in his faulty uh, faith at times. We see his lapses. We see his humanness. And this should encourage us because our walk with the Lord is very similar, is it not? Or is our life not spread full of uh, decisions that we have made in our own flesh and we've bared the consequences of them? Are there not times where our own faithlessness you know, we are reminded of and wondering if we can actually finish well? Are we not reminded from the book of Genesis and walking with uh, Abraham here that our marriages can be uh, tumultuous? Do we not see here in the life of Abraham our, ourselves in a struggling to wait patiently upon the Lord for him to fulfill in his way and in his time? We, we tend to think that God is wanting to do things immediately, but we see that God is not in a hurry. We see the promises of Genesis 3.15, and yet we don't see Christ come for over 4,000 years later. God is outside of time. We are bound by it, and we are often impatient because of that. Well, I think here we get a lesson of looking at this covenant afresh 
in what God is doing. And we've uh, seen that throughout Genesis 17 here, continuing from where we looked last week on this covenant with the sign of circumcision and God speaking to him in really three different speeches to him. And so as we look at this passage, we see that Abram is being corrected yet again about this promise and how God is going to fulfill it. Do you find yourself doing the same thing, asking the same questions over the course of your life of the Lord? Even just this morning, I had an email asking uh, me why suffering is sometimes allowed in the Christian life to go on and on and on, and God seems to not answer or take it away. After all, God is good, and after all, God is seeing for our sanctification, but why does he see fit in all of our lives to leave things there, to sit, we feel? What is he accomplishing? Well, we see this in the life of Abraham in this text this morning, and that we can be content in the context of covenant with him, because he is working and the ultimate issue is that we would be more dependent upon him and trust him more closely. So let's take a look at this text. When we look at verse 15 and 16 here, we're going to see really the acknowledgement of God, of Sarah also. He's brought Abraham attention to his promise and what he's going to accomplish. And he's told him that the sign would be of circumcision. And it seems very male-focused, does it not? And yet God, in his kindness, doesn't leave Sarah sitting alongside, even though she's part of this promise and the promised child is going to come through her. He points his attention to her and starts to speak to her. Isn't this beautiful how God comes alongside of us equally as men and women? And in the context of marriage here, we see God assuring Sarah that he's with her and is going to bless her. Secondly, we're going to see that Abraham has a second response in uh, contrast to how he responded in early in chapter 17. And so we'll look at that. And then thirdly, we see that God articulates his ultimate purpose in fulfilling his promises through Sarah and her womb and bringing forth a son. And then lastly, we'll see the assertive action of Abraham in obedience, which we have seen a pattern of throughout this part of Genesis. So let's take a look here, first of all, at how God acknowledges Sarah here, starting in verse 15. Now, remember the context from last week. He has established uh, that circumcision would be the sign of this covenant. Now, we know that from the New Testament, what we've looked at in Galatians, even though we kind of flew through that text uh, last week and the week before, that God is not establishing a covenant that, that, that circumcision is that covenant. It's simply a sign of that covenant. And notice that we'll see even in this context here that this is an eternal covenant. It's something that God is going to continue to fulfill. The fact is that even today, this morning, the fact that you are in this room as children of God is a fulfillment of the very promise we're studying. That should encourage you. That God has brought fruit from Abram. That his faith is what he was speaking of. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in the New Testament. That God would raise up a people for himself. And it wasn't just going to be after the flesh. Notice that it's based on the promise. Galatians spoke of this. That there's the flesh and there's the spirit. And that God is going to raise up a spiritual people that he would make alive. And the fact that you are born again this morning, if you are proves that God's one that keeps his promises. And he did this to Abram. 
So it should encourage us that God is a missional God. He is still redeeming. He is still saving. He is still fulfilling his very promises to us ultimately in Christ. And so we see here that he speaks to Abram and Sarah. So he says to Abram, for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Now, the play on words in the Hebrew here is very interesting. He's changing her name from Sarai to Sarah, ultimately meaning princess, really lining it up with exactly what he did with Abram and changing his name from, uh, uh, to Abraham, a father of a multitude. In other words, they are going to be parents of a huge number of, of children in the future. And you picture this. You have a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, and they are going to give birth to nations? Well, look at what he says here. Pay attention to verse 16. God says, I will, three times in verse 16. He says, I will bless her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Isn't it amazing how God initiates his covenant and the covenant recipients are receiving a blessing within that covenant because it is ultimately God who is the one making that covenant. And yet we see here the blessing that Sarah will have from God. Ultimately, it's through her that God is going to continue this scarlet thread of redemption that we're seeing through the book of Genesis, let alone to connect it to all of the rest of Scripture, yes, even to us, that God is going to do this at this time in this generation through the very womb of Sarah. And it isn't interesting that through the very context of this thread throughout the Scriptures, when we get to the Gospel, it is a young girl that God finds as the one he is going to bear the Messiah. It's amazing to see how God works his redemption through what would seem the most unlikely means. And so a barren woman he chooses to work through. And he says he will bless her. Notice the same language, just as he told Abram that his inheritance would be as the stars of the heavens, so with Sarah, that she would be uh, give birth to nations and kings and peoples that will come from her. I think it's interesting to see here that God is dealing in their covenant relationship here, speaking of their marriage, speaking that God is going to do this through them. And while we don't see it uh, straight out of the text, we do see it implied here that God is working in them as a couple, that God is, is seeing them uh, and that his will for them was uh, monogamy and not to look to the other nations and even the cultural practices of their day to take Hagar and have children by another woman. This was not God's uh, original plan or his purpose, but he allowed this in his providence to, to work uh, for his purposes and his glory, which we'll see here with um, uh, the, the uh, clarity that God brings here. Uh, towards the end of the chapter about Ishmael, which we'll get to in a few moments. But he brings this to Sarah and to Abram, that this is how he's going to fulfill his promise. This is what he's going to do, how he's going to uh, lead. I ask us this morning this very question, 
Is there a time in your life that you have just assumed that God was going to work in a certain way and you found yourself disappointed with the Lord? Have you found yourself frustrated that God hasn't done something that you expected him to do? Dear child, just remember that God is working in the midst of that. Remember that he is leading through even your disappointment that you have with him based on your unrealistic expectations. And the issue is usually because we, our expectation is on something or someone rather than the Lord. The Lord is our expectation. He is our hope. And that is what drives our faith, that our faith isn't what saves us. It's of the direction of our faith towards the one who is able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And instead of crying out to the Lord in the midst of their despair and their barrenness, they seek to make answers for themselves. Don't we see ourselves here? In what ways are you trying to become a better person? Uh, even this week, I, I was watching a, a movie and I saw some, uh, well, there was a one-liner in there, um, ultimately about heaven. And it was just really interesting. And I think it was a preview. But it was that, that heaven, you've you got to be good to go to heaven. And while in one sense that's very correct, you have to be perfect to go to heaven, um, uh, in another sense, it was this unrealistic, uh, uh, unattainable uh, trajectory to just be good. And we all know, if we have lived very long, that we don't have the ability to be good enough ourselves. We can never be good enough to get to heaven. And even the greatest uh, moral person is going to fall miserably short of his glory. And so we find here the reality that we are completely dependent upon our holy God that is the only one who is able to make a way for a sinful man. And so we see this, this acknowledgement really of Sarah and how she is going to play a part here in the ultimate uh, fulfilling of these promises. But notice Abram's uh, response here in verse 17. It says, then Abram fell on his face. Now contrast that with earlier in chapter 17 and that God was speaking to him and, uh, and then it, it, he, he's following all that God is saying, and Abraham falls on his face. Abram knew, verse 3, what it meant to worship and to show adoration to the Lord. But if you contrast verse 3 with verse 17, it's very interesting. As Abram fell on his face, which is a, a proper reverence before the Lord, he also laughed to himself. Now, we know that later on, when Sarai receives the same uh, information, she laughs and she's rebuked by the Lord. And we'll get to that passage in several weeks. But it's interesting here that he's not rebuked by the Lord in this sense. But it does seem that he is laughing based upon the very reality of his situation. And the text brings this out. Moses, the author of Genesis, is writing this. And he asks a question of the Lord. He says, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And just listen to that question for a moment. Abram has trusted this God who has called him out of his hometown to go to a place he's never heard of before, and he believes the Lord. It's accounted to him as righteousness, and he's walking by faith. 
And isn't this true of us, that we come to a place where it seems absolutely impossible for God to fulfill his promises, and the only way we can think about it in our finite minds is that this has to happen. A has to meet B so that C can happen. And this is very clear. Lord, if you're going to bring this out of our bodies, hey, you're a little late. We're 90 and almost 100 years old. Do we have that heart as well? Do we ask questions like this? Abraham is very logical here. He is very right. And yet it is funny in this sense to think that God would use what is laughable to accomplish his purposes. In fact, you look at the, the rest of Scripture. Doesn't God, is he always on display in this way? He uses what seems to be impossible situations to make himself the only focus so that he receives all the glory. You think about Daniel. You think about how God delivered them. You think about how ultimately he brought Jesus into the world through the Virgin Mary. You think about how God ultimately conquered the world by uh, the death of his son. You think about how he reversed the curse of sin through the shed blood of his own son, that his victory upon the cross, and even the coming of Christ is yet to come, but how is God accomplishing his purpose, his redemptive plan? It's through us, the church. He's doing this miraculously day by day as he calls people out of their sin into his grace and they are receiving the justification that Christ paid on the cross. And is this normal? No. Is it logical? No. But God is doing it. And yet the reality is that often we just look at things in a logical sense and say it has to happen this way and God says, no, it doesn't. Why? Because he's God. He delights in blowing our minds up. And he delights in making us look to him as he gently takes our chin and lifts it up to his great glory to remind us that we are man and that he is God, that he is able to do the impossible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. I encourage you, for those who are crying out that God would save your loved ones, keep praying. Keep being persistent. Watch and believe that God is able to do the impossible. Pray for those who are suffering. Pray for those who have not yet heard the gospel. God is able to raise up missionaries. God is able to accomplish these things. He is able to raise up sons and daughters from stones. After all, he saved us, did he not? After all, he is the one who in his kindness delivered us. You yourself are a witness to his grace. Your salvation is preaching to you that God is able to keep his promises. And so if that supernatural truth, that miracle that he did in us is true, why is it so hard for us to trust him in the smaller things? And that is a great question. But oftentimes, the testing of our faith, as James says, produces patience. And patience needs to have its perfect work that we can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so, dear saint, God has brought troubles into your life or challenges of faith for you, for his work in you, and ultimately for his glory. And he's doing the same thing here with Sarah and Abraham, that he said he was going to do it, and he's going to do it, even though humanly it seems absolutely impossible. Apply that to your life in the sense of a, troubled marriage or your prayers for your children or grandchildren 
your prayers for college decisions, you young ones, your prayers for your future, your prayers in your sickness, in your suffering. God is there. He's speaking through it. The issue is, are we listening? And so God, calling Sarah, calling Abram here, Abram laughs his response. And while the scriptures bring our attention to this, we see that ultimately God uses this for his glory because he actually instructs them that his name will be Isaac, laughter. Okay, you're going to laugh. I'm going to use this name actually to see who's laughing at the end of the day. And isn't this joyful? You think about the patience of God. You think about the joy that was set before him when he went to the cross. He loves his children, and yet notice how patient he is with their lack of faith. Notice his patience with, this, with finite man. Isn't he kind to come alongside him? And so Abram not only laughs, he has the logical conclusion, there's no way that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman can produce anything but tiredness. And in verse 18, and Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael live before you. I have a great idea, God. How about you use the very son that we produced through Hagar? And God says, that's so chapter 16. You'd think he'd lost or remembered his lesson here. Look at verse 19. And God said, no. For some of you, that can reverberate into your soul that God says no. We think we have a great idea. We see it as his plan. And we, we try to attribute our thoughts to God and think this is totally the foolproof plan here. And God says no. Let me just remind us that God in his kindness rebukes us. God in his kindness says no, dear child. I have a better plan. No, although this seems logical, I say no. And notice he course corrects yet again in his patience. In the last few chapters, this has happened multiple times. He says, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Laughter. You shall name him Isaac. So not only has God changed Abram's name to identify him with the promise of being a father of a multitude of nations. And not only has he changed Sarai's name to be princess or a one that will rule over many and, and be the, the beginning of many, but he's now given the very name of yet their promised son, which will be laughter. And while it's awesome to see this in covenant, there is quite an underlying theme going on here as we see that God ultimately brings joy through his promises that we as his children really do find relief in him and only in him. We find joy and we find peace and yes, laughter. But even through a very, uh, what seems to be an insignificant response to God's promise, God challenges Abram. And so in verse 8, he reminds him of this assurance. He says in verse 8, he says uh, um, that I will establish my covenant with him, 
excuse me, not verse 8, uh, verse 19. I read that wrong. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So the acknowledgement of the continuation of this covenant would be not just for him, but those after. Now remember the promise, the four-part promise involved the land uh, and, and Abram's blessing, but ultimately that through many would be blessed through him, ultimately pointing future tense, that this offspring, these of faith, these people of faith, would be for an everlasting covenant. It's really whetting our appetite for a covenant that we'll see in Christ, that a covenant that outdoes all other covenants, that in this day and age we have heard from the Son. And so while Abram had a great idea about uh, Ishmael being the promised son and having a discussion with God about this, God says no. But God in his kindness helps Abram in his reasoning. Isn't that awesome that in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our toil, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our not understanding and our own confusion and our walks with the Lord, God is so kind to not just correct us or even rebuke us, but he's so kind to come alongside of us and reason with us. Look at verse 20. He says, as for Ishmael, Abram was just like any other red-blooded father. He loved his son regardless of their beginnings. Regardless that he was not the son of promise, he still loved Ishmael. And he says, but as for Ishmael, I've heard you. He says, behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. So notice here, while we don't have time to look at this, those 12 princes are, are mentioned later in scripture that come from him that show that God is fulfilling his promises even to Ishmael. But there's a contrast here between what God will do with Ishmael and what he's going to do with Isaac, which is very key here in verse 21. He says, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. There's no covenant with Ishmael. There's promises to Ishmael as far as what will come about in his life and what God will use him providentially to accomplish. But his ultimate covenant is with Isaac and through Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Notice again, God is underlining that with great clarity. It's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. Oh, by the way, Isaac is gonna be yours and Sarah's child. Oh, by the way, and he will be Isaac. And by the way, you will have this child with Sarah. And then he adds this wonderful phrase that Abraham must have leapt at hearing at the end of verse 22, at this time next year. All the waiting has come to this. God has slowly revealed to him this covenant over the course of multiple conversations, multiple years, that he was called to wait upon the Lord, to believe God. It was accounted to him as righteousness, but there was never a date that was given to Abram until now. And so Abram now has the logical information to realize when God is ultimately going to do this. But the issue is whether we see or don't see the logical proof, God is still calling us to trust him. Isn't this the case with Thomas after the resurrection? All the other guys got the privilege of seeing Jesus, and for whatever reason, Thomas didn't, he missed it. 
And he didn't believe. And he says, unless I put my fingers into the nail holes and I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And many of us can try to cast him aside and say, Thomas, doubting Thomas. I tell you what, most of us ought to align ourselves with him and we can see ourselves in him. And do you remember Jesus' response to him? Jesus said, blessed are you. Come, and, 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 he, and he says, put your fingers here in the nail holes, Thomas. Touch my side. And he said, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet believe. And dear church, is that not us? We didn't have the privilege of those dear disciples to put our fingers in his nail holes. But we believe him. We believe his gospel. We believe that he's working in us. We believe that he is able to accomplish what we can't see. We don't know when he's coming back, but he calls us to serve. And whether we die in old age or whether we die in young age, we are called to this mission. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what's going on with our health. We don't know what's going on with our country. We don't know anything. And the issue is we tend to think that we're smarter than we really are. We are so futile. We are so dependent upon God. We are so miserable without him. And he comes alongside of us. He aids us in our position. And he assures us of his great and precious promises. And he reasons with us. And so the promise to Sarah, the articulation of God's purpose will be in this way, in his time, a year from now. How that year must have been different than the 10 previous in him questioning what God was doing. And yet God works. Do we sow in faith, believing God? And so here we see that in verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abram. So that ends really the conversation. But then we see, lastly, our last point this morning in the text is Abram's response again. Or as we put it here in our outline, his assertive action, which is obedience, which is multiple times in our, the last few chapters we see, yes, the struggling of Abraham, the struggle of faith, but we see also his obedience. And be encouraged by this. Look at what he does. It says, Then Abram took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that day, as God had said to him. Church, the proof of our belief is action. It's acting on the truth. You can know all the glories of God. You can read and know his word. You can memorize it. But unless you act on the truth, you're not going to see God accomplish what he has promised in his word that he would do. And it's the very act of obedience that God, by his spirit, is working in to accomplish his purposes. He will not give way to flesh. He will not give way to us accomplishing his purposes in our way. Notice here that he is calling Abram to faith. He's instructed him in what they're ultimately supposed to do in the sign of the covenant that they believe God. And just as Abram has produced this before in obedience, we see that God is doing this in Abraham as well. He takes his house and he 
uh, to the T, um, circumcise everyone. And we think, oh, that's Abram's faith and that this was a small thing. Well, did you read what he was called to do? Did you read what the sign of the covenant is? All of those in his household were to be circumcised. Notice that Ishmael was 13 as we see. Just like any other father, it's hard to get a 13-year-old to do anything, let alone try to circumcise him. And so you see the faith that Abram had in getting all of these men together, and they, in one accord, are obeying the Lord. Now, we don't have that in the text of Scripture, and I'm not trying to, to read into this or to, to uh, suggest that there was trouble there, but you just think about how that happened and, and that it was not an easy task. And yet God called Abram to do that and with a full assertive heart led his people, including those who were bought with his money, to be circumcised. That very day, it says, as God had said to him, end of verse 23. And then verse 24, Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very day, Abram and his son were circumcised. Notice it's mentioned that three times. Usually in Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament here, Moses writing things when something is established, it's mentioned two or three times. And so it's underlined that Abram did what? He obeyed. He obeyed the Lord. And so it says that all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those who were bought with money from the foreigner were circumcised with him. Now we know from the New Testament that this is, was seen as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is true. But the, what we can miss here is that the obedience to this particular thing is not exactly what God's all intents and purpose was in fulfilling the promises to Abraham. Well, in that time, that was the covenant sign. I think it's important for us to see Abraham's ultimate obedience. It was accounted to him as righteousness because he was trusting God. And we know that this is an example of his faith in his obedience to the Lord. And in the same way in our own lives, when God instructs us to do something and we put our faith in him, it is that very action of obedience that proves the very faith that God has put there in the first place. And so comes the hard news for us. We, his people, are in a gracious covenant with the Lord. As we've just celebrated uh, with our confession of sin and our assurance of pardon that we can come boldly before God's throne of grace because of what Christ has done in laying that atonement down for us to be able to do so. I think oftentimes we want to just take the good from the Lord and leave him aside. And while we rejoice at God's awesome mercy for us in delivering us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, we fail to trust him in what he's calling us to do in the future. We fail to trust him and have that same kind of assertive action that Abraham has here. And what do I mean by that? Well, God in our covenant with Christ is not calling us to circumcision, which would be hard enough task if we were to have to do that. But even more so, we see that God is calling us to this hard task 
of, of doing what he has called us to do in the sense of not just following after him, but taking his gospel to places it's never been. In fact, this is his call from the very beginning, the very commission to his church, is that go and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And you might say, well, Pastor Scott, you're trying to take a, a passage and, and make it missional. We understand that. But isn't this exactly what God was doing in the very promise to Abram? He said that nations would come from him, that God would, would multiply him greatly. And we know from the New Testament that this was not just uh, physical progeny. This ultimately would be progeny that would come of faith. This is why Jesus argued with the Pharisees in his day. Because they're like, you, you're saying that you were with Abraham and you're not yet 50 years old. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Church, God is still on the same mission he was in the days of Abram. It's to redeem a people for himself. It's to bring a praise to his glory of which we are a part. But we cannot grow uh, numb in our world and in our fight with sin and our fight ultimately for righteousness. God has called us to ultimately surrender ourselves on the altar of of, uh, of giving him ourselves as living sacrifices that he might produce through our very lives fruit that is eternal. And so the very call here for us as God's people is to look to him and his precious promises. Isn't this what uh, Hebrews tells us that Abram was doing? Turn to Hebrews 11. As we close here, I think we can get great encouragement by the faith of Abraham and his obedience. It says in chapter 11, verse 8 of Hebrews, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place uh, and was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him, of the same promise. And here in verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Church, do not become nearsighted in the context of what God is doing in your life. God is not just delivering you. He's using you as his ultimate workmanship. You are in the Redeemer's hands to accomplish his purposes for his glory. And notice here that he's doing this in the life of Abraham. And he's looking forward to that ultimate city that we are looking forward to. And then even here we see the faith of Sarah. He says, by faith, Sarah uh, herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she, was consider, she considered him faithful who had promised. Isn't that interesting? In, the, in the, the text of Genesis, it doesn't lead us to that, but we have these precious verses here in the New Testament that she believed God, and God gave her strength to even conceive. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. 
and as many as innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. And these all died in faith, having, received, having not received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the world. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would not have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And ultimately, we see it goes on to cover uh, Abram and Isaac, which we'll look to in the future uh, as God leads. But church, be encouraged here. Are you willing to be planted as a seed for the ultimate glory of God, of things that will reverberate into generations after you? Are you investing that way, your life, for the good of his people? Are you investing not just in your own family? Well, that's where it starts. Is, is he ultimately, are, are you trusting him by faith and acting on that truth to invest in a way and plant seeds by faith that will bear fruit into eternity? This is the call of God, to trust him. And through obedience, it bears fruit to others coming to faith in Christ. He's redeeming one person at a time, and he's doing that through the faithful proclamation of the gospel in his church and through his people. And so we can be excited about this this morning, that these aren't just empty historical words on a page that God made promises in those days, but for somehow today we feel like we're abandoned by God. But no, he has drawn us near in Christ. And in these days, he has spoken to us through his son. And we have great and precious promises, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1. And we have the glories of Christ in ways that those that had in those days looking forward to that in faith, we are able to look back upon. We, by his grace, have his spirit indwelling in us. We have the very power of God to not only say no to sin, but yes to the Lord, to move forward in faith and to see him working in ways that we could have never thought possible. And our own minds would limit us in saying that that is not possible. I can't do that out of the mountains of North Carolina. Lord, how in the way in, in the world are you going to use me and my life and my children for the, your glory? I don't understand it. But that is what God is going to do when we trust him by faith, that he is going to use our lives for his spiritual purposes and ultimately to accomplish his greatness and his glory because he ultimately ought to be our treasure. He ultimately is enough. He ultimately ought to be not just our righteousness and our hope, but our joy and yes, our laughter. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing passage that we see here before us. We thank you for your patience with Abram and in it, we see your patience with us. We can see our own frailty. We see our own stumbling. We see our own fleshly actions. We see our own failure. We see our own disobedience. And yet you come alongside of us just like you did with Abram. You reason with us. You encourage us. You rebuke us. You remind us of your promises. That, Lord, you are not finished with us yet. 
And God, we pray that you would encourage each one hearing this this morning, here or online, that, Lord, you would work in such a way to refresh their souls that you are the only one that is able to work this very circumstances of our lives for your glory and for our good. And Lord, for those who are experiencing pain and straight out suffering and their questions of what you're seeking to accomplish through that, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that they would look to you the one who has all answers. And while this side of heaven, it doesn't always make sense, Lord, one day we shall understand. One day we shall look upon your face. In the meantime, Lord, you call us to live not by sight, but by faith. Father, we thank you for your work towards us in Christ Jesus. May you be glorified in not just the preaching of your word this morning, but our obedience to it that like Abraham, we would see the fruit of your work in us and not just the frailty of our flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.